Other People with Brad Listy is a weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading authors, poets, and screenwriters. Electric Literature calls it one of the best podcasts on the web, and BuzzFeed calls it the perfect way to get the stories behind your stories. There are now more than 400 episodes available, including one featuring me. And counting. Really? Yeah. The, the, I talked to him a couple of years ago when I was oh. promoting one of my novels. Brad, uh, Brad, Listy, Brad Listy is a great resource, right? He's the, the Nervous Breakdown has been a great literary podcast for almost a decade. No, now. he's fantastic. He gets the best people and he, he asks terrific questions. Hear conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Leslie Jameson, Hanya Yanagihara, Jonathan Lethem, Sheila Hetty, Eileen Miles, and many more. Other People with Brad Listy has its own official app available for free at your local app store. The show is also available for free at iTunes and Stitcher and on the web at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com. It's a cool podcast. Check it out. Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. On today's show, we'll hear conversations with author Sarah Bakewell, Tony Tulitamudi, author of a novel called Private Citizens, and performance artist and novelist Andrea Klein. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of LARB. She is now a roving editor without portfolio or with every portfolio, however you want to look at it. Lori Weiner. Hello. Hi, Seth. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. And our co-host, he's the founding editor of LARB, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. The professor. This is the third show we're doing from the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. It's something we look forward to here in Los Angeles every year. One of the things I like to do is wander around the campus at USC where the festival is held and just marvel at the crowds and the booths which go on and on and on. LARB had a booth there this year, and I believe it's not the first time, right, Tom? No, no we, do. we have one every year, and, and there are publishers from all over... The area here, but from all over the, the country and around around the world, there are bookstores that have booths. There are um, there are writing seminars. There are there's there, food trucks. There are food trucks. There are bands going on some of the stages. There are people reading children's stories to great fields of children. It feels and, like a gigantic book party. It is a huge book party. Lori, do you get out and uh, walk among the people, or do you hide out in the? Uh, I don't like the it, people, and I I just stay. I don't think you can say that on KPFK. You're not allowed to say you don't like the people. We're gonna we're gonna beep you, Lori, because it's so antithetical. You're afraid of the truth. You can't handle the truth. I think it's a good time to listen to an interview we did. Tom, do you agree? I think uh, we should have listened to it a few minutes ago. Lori, come back. We are at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books on a rainy day under an overhang. The weather looks like it would be appropriate for a production of Wuthering Heights. Our first guest is Sarah Bakewell. She's written a book called At the Existentialist Cafe. Sarah, what was the, this, the book has a very good subtitle. What was the subtitle? Uh, the subtitle is uh, Freedom, Being, and Apricot Cocktails. 
Hey, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks. Can we get some cocktails, Aviva? <laughs> And, uh, I would say that apricot cocktails are not not that good. I've not. had some. They're a little bit sweet. They're not my favorite. but You yeah. can't drink a lot of them. No, no, that you would, can't. That would be a mistake. I've tried. Right. So uh, I read that you traveled quite a bit when you were a child. Mm. Were you an only child? Yes. Did that cause any kind of nervousness? Having, like in the U.S., most students go bananas when they get yanked out of school and moved somewhere else. Like it's too much. Uh, <laughs> or, or was it, or did you like it? Well, um, because we traveled from when I was very young, I thought everybody lived that way. I didn't think of it as being a, an unusual thing to do. But we, I mean, my parents kind of packed me into a Volkswagen bus and drove off to India on the hippie trail when I was five years old. So, Would you characterize them as seekers, your parents? Uh, yes, actually, that's a good word for it. Because they were on the hippie trail. They weren't quite hippies. They were just a tiny bit too old to be hippies. But not seekers after enlightenment. I think just seekers after seeing the world. Did you uh, at any point say to yourself, "I want to translate philosophy for the general public"? Like, did you? Did no, you? Was I've that a? Never said that okay. at all. No, I've oh. just said, really, I want to try and kind of understand the, these things. I want to revisit things that have interested me and and learn a bit more and just see how one idea might have grown out of another. But at the same time, I want to write about it in a way that is in theory, that anybody could, could follow, just as, you know, I'm kind of following it as I go along. And I assume that part of the experience of writing this book is realizing as you revisit some of these writers years after university that they're reading a little bit differently to you. Oh, definitely, um, particularly with the existentialists, because I, like a lot of people, I discovered them when I was a teenager, first mm -hmm. of all, and then when I was in my early 20s, I studied philosophy at university, but I was very passionate about Heidegger and Sartre and all of these and to returning to them all these years later I can kind of recover that that passion but mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's different it's almost like there's two selves are sort of in a dialogue how did your take on existentialism change from the time you were first exposed to these authors as a kid to now as an adult and an author yourself well when I was a kid, especially a teenager, reading Sartre and Camus, I think what I loved, as, as so many people do, is the, the spirit of rebellion and the spirit of the sense of being alienated and trying to figure out how to occupy the world. When I return to it now, it's that that has isn't so immediate. There's not this. I think as you grow older, there's not this burning. Well, I guess a, a certain self-obsession kind of evaporates out of the picture, and instead, you become much more interested in how they thought, what they were trying to do, and trying to understand them in the context of their own time too, realizing, which I didn't when I was first reading this stuff, how much of it came out of the experience of the Second World War, mm -hmm. um, the experience of occupation in, in France, liberation coming after that, which was you know, liberation in every sense of the word. It was personal liberation, sexual liberation, the freedom to go and dance and listen to jazz and, and to kind of think about creating a new kind of world. Who's the philosopher that best can explain that experience? Because I think of, those, of, of a lot of the people that you write about here as at least trying to be monists in, so, in one way or another. Um, well, the philosopher that, that really captures the general ambiguity of human experience, if, if that's the sort of thing that you're asking about. Yeah, I, that's, that's good. Uh, well, yeah. what comes to mind is Simone de Beauvoir, because mm -hmm. she wrote so much in um, her memoirs and in, even in her philosophical texts. You know, she wrote a book called The Ethics of Ambiguity, which is 
really saying that part of the human condition is to try to do things that are mutually incompatible. We want to be completely free, but we're also products of our situation. And this ambiguity of the human condition is absolutely essential to what we are. We can't escape it. Mm -hmm. We are ambiguous. Um, she communicates this in terms of her own life in her memoirs, which are these four extraordinary volumes, rich with detail of everybody that she's met or talked to, uh, books that she's read, what her friends were arguing about, where they went, their travels, their interests, their politics, everything. And she reflects, especially towards the end of that, on the whole process of her life and how she's been different people at different times mm -hmm. and how, you know, how fascinating that all is, trying to make sense of one life autobiographically. And, I find that very... I, I really relate to that. I think more and more as you go on, you, you have this sense of so many different selves. Absolutely. And, and uh, I, I loved that the, the, the alarming sirens that were going off through that whole explanation. Yeah. Which is <laughs> <laughs> we arranged that. It yeah, went yeah. well, didn't it? Yeah. It creates a sense of urgency. It, uh, it did, really, yeah. <laughs> Um, this is, they wouldn't ask this question because it's too naive and big, but um, do you think of the history of philosophy as like the evolution of human thought? And do you think we're getting better at understanding our own condition or do you think we're just re-understanding it from different angles? I think we're probably re-understanding it from different angles. It's too bad. More, yeah. Damn. No it's, progress? Uh, well, I think there's progress in many things. I mean, mm -hmm. I, there's, there's, I, I do believe that there is in the notion of progress in science, you know, in our understanding of the universe, mm -hmm. and in our understanding of ourselves, considered as, say, understanding what's going on in our brains when we do things, or what's mm -hmm. going on in, with our genes and hormones. And what, I mean, all of that is valid um, knowledge, and it is increasing our ability to understand ourselves. What philosophy offers is, is sort of like a shadow line that runs alongside that. It's a different kind of inquiry, it's um, particularly existentialist philosophy is looking at human experience as lived, as, as we live it. So mm -hmm. you can point to all the kind of neurons and, and hormones and genes that you like. And existentialism will always say, well, that's all this may be, but there's always this, there's this other thing. And that other thing is our freedom, our sense of freedom, our sense of who we are, what we are as human beings. It, that, it doesn't necessarily sort of improve or progress I, do, I don't think it does but but what it does do is you know each philosopher is building on all of the philosophers of the past but it's sort of creating a construction that isn't necessarily going to keep marching on it might just go off in all sorts of side tangents or curl around and and pick up on something that happened long before and take it in a new direction it's more like a sort of network that's constantly expanding rather than a a road that's constantly proceeding. I think that's the best way of thinking about it. All right, the book is at the Existentialist Cafe. Sarah Bakewell, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Let's go get some apricot cocktails. Yeah, some kind of cocktail. <laughs> this is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner on KPFK 90.7 FM, the LA Review of Books radio hour. We are here at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books conducting a series of fascinating interviews. Continuing the National Geographic theme here uh, at the Book Festival, LARB in Nature, we're here with Tony Tulitamudi, who has written a novel called Private Citizens, a very well-received first novel. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Tony, you 
wrote this book over the course of seven years. You started in 2007, you finished it a few years ago, and you're out now promoting it. Talk about the, the psychological dissonance involved in talking about a book that has been done for a while when you're already doing several new projects. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it takes a little while to write a book, of course. Like some people can do it as quickly as six months. In my case, it took seven and a half years. Even after you finish it all, then it takes another uh, several months to find an agent, to find a publisher, to put it through the editorial process, get it through marketing. Um, that usually amounts to something like a year and a half with some overlap with the rest of it. So I wrote what I thought when I started was a really contemporary novel. And uh, now it's almost like I'm sort of talking about a period piece. And your book, why don't you just say a little what, of what your book is about? Okay, it's about um, four 20-somethings. They're uh, Stanford graduates and friends uh, in San Francisco in 2007. And, you know, in format, like, I guess the most concise thing I could say is that it's not like girls, even <laughs> though it sounds exactly like that. And by saying it's not like girls, what do you mean? I mean that... Uh, Other than Lena Dunham's not involved. Yeah, yeah. Is she not, is she not in it? Is Lena Dunham not in it? Because no, I was, no, no. I've been misled. Yeah, yeah. She actually ghost wrote it, and I'm just here. I'm her <laughs> JT Leroy doppelganger. <laughs> Um, but I, uh, yeah, it's not like girls in the sense that um, it's not TV, <laughs> for one thing. And that actually opens up a lot of opportunities for getting in people's heads, right? That's the thing that novels do a lot better than television, sort of follow an extended train of thought and actually keep it dynamic and interesting instead of doing something like voiceover or having somebody like type a search query into Google on screen to show them the viewer what they're thinking or things like that. You get maybe like a minute of thought, of sustained thought, dramatized on TV at most. And on a novel, you can just go on for pages and pages and pages until the reader has long since fallen asleep. What was the challenge in writing the book that led you to take seven years to do it? Figuring out how to write a book, you know. Right. Um, but you, we should say you are a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. That's right. And when you were at the workshop, what were you working on? With short fiction? Uh, just this, actually. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I had finished a book of short fiction uh, before coming to the workshop, and there was just something um, fake about it. You know, I, I, I thought all those stories were really well-crafted. I think they are still, um, but there was something uh, in them that made me feel like I was writing to other people's criteria. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely, and it's a little bit like what I'm going to be talking about in my panel soon, which is that um, I really felt this, um, I don't know, tacit pressure to write characters that were deep or, uh, you know, empathetic or um, relatable on some hum basic human level because the value proposition for most fiction these days is like, well, you know, it's not entertaining like TV and movies are. It's more like you have this deep soul connection uh, with these f fictional characters and you can really know somebody's heart and soul and people are really good deep down and people who read fiction are also correspondingly good deep down, you know? And they, and they want to have that reinforced in the, as part of the reading experience. Yeah, there's just something pious about it that struck me as kind of false and not like what I was going for. And that's not, all, not really at all the case with this book. This book is pretty mean. Uh, we like I wanna, mean. I want to congratulate you on that, by the way. <laughs> How do you feel you developed at, as a student at the Iowa Writers' Workshop in a way that perhaps you would not have had you gone to New York or Los Angeles or Lincoln, Nebraska? Uh, I, as a graduate of one, you know, have to uh, defend its merits, at least on the uh, ground that it's not going to ruin you as a writer. I'm enormously grateful that somebody paid me for three years to do nothing but write. So, you know, that said, uh, 
you know, the, the effect of being in a workshop environment is always, I think, vastly overstated just because you're only in workshop for two hours a week, right? Um, you're also taking other classes. And you can also, like somebody who I was in the workshop with, just openly read The New Yorker while people are critiquing you and not <laughs> listen to a single word that they say, right? Um, Have you seen the TV show Silicon Valley? Just because we yeah. keep, like, we like to bring up TV for no reason. That's <laughs> where the alley review of books. No, well, so it's important we bring up television. But Tom, I mean, Tom Lutz is joining us oh, right Tom now, Lutz. we should Hi, say. Tom Lutz. Hey, Tom Lutz. This is Tony. Uh, yeah, hi, Tony. That's me. Uh, Silicon Valley. I find it very funny. Do you find it funny? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. And, you know, I, I'm, as somebody who wrote a comic novel, you know, I thought that um, getting people to laugh and do the laugh that's more than just, like, the one sort of sharp exhalation from the nostrils, uh, that, like, was somehow cheap or that it was like a, a parlor trick that you were using to uh, obscure the fact that your book had no substance or something like that. And really, you know, the, when, when it comes to any aesthetic effect, um, the, the credo should be why not both and why not all, right? And, and is there a great novelist who is not also a great comedian? I mean, even Dostoevsky could be incredibly yeah, you can, funny. You, Melville could not go like one page without a dad joke. Exactly. This guy was like a real... Exactly a real yeah. laugh riot. Um, I mean, and, and you can also hear him like sort of busting himself up mm -hmm. as he's writing too. Uh, Joyce took it a step further and was really just making himself laugh and nobody else <laughs> as the later you get into his the, career. The purest laugh of all. But there's something, you know, uh, really generous about uh, the impulse to want to make a reader laugh rather than try to scale this craggy mountain of your intellect mm -hmm. uh, in order to understand what you're doing. And I've always been amazed at in adap film adaptation how often people take great novels and miss the humor completely. Like like uh, a good uh, Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. Yeah. Hilarious Or almost novel. any Jane Austen uh, right. a novel adaptation which is yeah. always turns into like a bodice ripper yeah. instead of like a comedy of manners or social exactly. satire. Yeah. Now I, I understand that you're working on four books right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, I, I'm going to be coy about these because, uh, you know, I don't want to, like, smother them in the cradle or anything. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's a, a not, three unpublishable nonfiction books. Three unpublishable? Totally unpublishable. Fantastic. How do you apportion your work? Uh, I stay at home for something like 16 hours a day without changing into normal pants. And, and you can work on That's important. Things. That's yeah. really important. Oh, oh yeah. you got to yeah. keep it comfy below the yeah. waist. No one, yeah. here, no one here wears pants also, from Monday <laughs> to Friday. I think and you don't wander outside. Say. You, right. don't, you don't wander away. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, who's that writer that used to like tie himself to his chair with his bathrobe sash? It's like that. <laughs> All right. The book is Private Citizens. Tony Tulich Moody. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK FM. We're still outside. We love it out here at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival. Andrea Klein is here. She's written a book called Calf. It's great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Your book has the most interesting premise, and I know that it's based on something that actually did happen to you in life, so I don't want to be insensitive, but it is a fascinating premise. Mm -hmm. Would you like to tell the audience what it is, or would you like me to do it? You go I ahead. <laughs> we vote for you, Andrew. Okay. It's three yes. to one. Uh, you have to do it. Calf is a novel. It's a uh, has two uh, parallel storylines. One is a fictionalized account of the John Hinckley Jr. story. John Hinckley Jr. was the person who, in 1981, 
attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan as a way of proving his love for the actress Jodie Foster, who was a teenager at the time. Um, he was found not guilty by reason of mental illness and sent to a psychiatric facility. At the same time, around the same time, there was a Washington woman named Leslie DeVoe who uh, was also mentally ill. She had a psychotic episode where she murdered her 10-year-old daughter. And her 10-year-old daughter was a school friend of mine. I was 11 or 12 at the time. Um, DeVoe was also found not guilty by reason of mental illness. She was sent to the same psychiatric facility as Hinckley, and those two became romantically involved. So this story follows a fictionalized Hinckley character, and also the story of an 11-year-old girl coming of age in Washington in the early 1980s. How much research did you do about John Hinckley's actual uh, psychiatric state? Um, I did some research. I read there were a couple books written about Hinckley, mostly uh, about the trial, which was uh, an, an important trial in terms of the legal, the insanity defense. And I think the law was changed after that because there was such an uproar. Um, and uh, Hinckley's parents uh, wrote a book um, about their experience um, that was also very helpful, just sort of mapping out what happened to him and where he went and how he sort of fell apart. Um, and in terms of the DeVoe case, which I had more personal knowledge of, but I also did go back and read a lot of old newspaper articles at the time to sort of refresh my memory. Now, the if when somebody moved away from my school when I was 10 years old, mm -hmm. it seemed like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the this murder must have completely destroyed the entire class in some ways. Yeah, yeah. It was it was one of the defining moments of my childhood. And it was, in retrospect, it's, it was interesting, if you could say somebody being brutally murdered was interesting, um, that that happened at the age of 12, where you're sort of about to become a teenager, you know, about to become more sexually aware, about to sort of start to think of yourself as who you are, or who you will be as an adult. Um, and, you know, in a, in a plot that sort of mirrors a lot of young adult literature where, you know, like Judy Bloom, you move, you figure out who you are, you get your period, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it did really, it did really destroy um, a lot of feelings of safety. And it also sort of underlined what I feel like for me, and I'm 46, so I'm right in the, you know, Generation X. Um, and it's sort of, I, when I was writing the novel and I was sort of thinking about it in retrospect in sort of generational terms, that it underlined this sort of, um, I guess what could be called like a Generation X sort of cynical mistrust of authority um, and of people who are supposed to protect you. And I think that's something that binds people of my generation together is of this feeling that we always sort of felt on our own. And the book is a lot about loneliness, and it sort of looks at loneliness from several different perspectives. Douglas Coupland was, was right, the first right. bard of, yep. this, of, that, yeah. of your generation, right? I guess, and, and, I guess so. And, 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 it's uh, always weird when number one comes out, and they're like, this is it! And you're yeah, like, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I had an experience. I'm 10 years older than you are. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was uh, 13 years old, a girl I knew, not as well as, as you knew this girl, but a girl that I went to Hebrew school with. Like, I knew mm -hmm. her. I saw her once a week. 
was got killed. Her name was Esther Leibowitz, and she they found her body uh, in the at the basement of a tropical fish store. And every time I see a tropical fish store, you know, mm-hmm. to this day, I just get chills. Right. Uh, she was killed by a stranger, which is very different than being killed by your mother. Right. But I do remember that sense of the world being utterly altered mm-hmm. in one day. Just, mm-hmm. lo- just, just the feeling of being in the world was mm-hmm. completely different. Yeah. Being killed by someone who is your protector, of right. course, if something can be more horrifying than being killed by a stranger, is more horrifying, probably. Um, yeah. There's no question there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But uh, I do. Absolutely. I just really viscerally remember that feeling. Yeah. Let, let me jump in with a question. Right, writing about childhood, I think, is incredibly challenging. I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons Salinger has lasted as long as he has and is held in such high regard is because he's one of the few people who does it so incredibly well. And I'm curious, what is it like to... to we were all 11 a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What was it like to reanimate the emotional life of an 11-year-old? Well... One of the great things about being 11 in the early 80s was that there was no internet. So in trying to recreate that environment, um, I really sort of relied on my senses and like sort of trying to remember what our house was like. And and one thing sort of led to another. Like if you remember that um, phones used to have, you know, cords and they were on the wall and then Sometimes you, your family would buy like an extra long phone cord that could go all the way to the end of the room. But it twisted funny. But it twisted funny, and then you would play the game where you turned it, you held it by the cord and watched it, you know, unravel. Um, but it was, to it was it was kind of a very emotionally vulnerable thing to write that book. Um, uh, but also, we lived in D.C. at the time, and but shortly after this. Uh, Hap, this murder happened about a year afterwards. We moved away, so it was really kind of sealed in my memory, very much attached to DC. And I think that sort of um, containing of it within a physical space helped me access it because I knew exactly what the parameters are. Because a lot of writers talk about writing about their childhood, and it's it, you know it could be endless. It could be endless. What worried you the most about writing it? About going back there and, and reopening that very, very painful experience. Oh, really, my family, how it affected my family. Um, I didn't tell my family what I was writing about while I was writing it at all. And the book actually took a, had a long, torturous journey to publication. So I was sort of starting to think, like, well, I, maybe I'll never have to tell them. Um, but it was especially with my sister, who's two years younger, who really was this girl's best friend. And they were, you know, two, uh, they were 10. And it was, that was like the hardest call to make was to tell her that this happened. And she was, um, she was very upset with me. And then she said, well, I wanna read it before it comes out. And I was like, you don't have to read it. She's like, I really, my sister can be very stubborn. She's like, I wanna read it. And so I'm like, okay, I sent her the manuscript with like kind of um, certain sections clipped, like with notes saying, don't read this section. And she started, she read a little bit of the book and then she stopped before she got to, you know, anything kind of gruesome. And she said, I can't read it because it's infecting my memory of my childhood. And she wanted to preserve that for her. And so she was like, you know, I'm out. 
that's the curse of any family member of yeah. a writer. But um, was part of the impetus for, for needing or wanting to write the book, figuring out that question, which I'm sure occurred to you when you were 11, which is, how did this happen? Was, it, was writing the book a way to figure that out? In retrospect, I, I think so, but I th also think it was some sort of personal exorcism in a way of this experience. But although the book is about Hinckley and it's about this uh, mother who murdered her child, it also is very much about all of these little intimate acts of day-to-day -day violence that we live through. And I think, you know, underneath it all, that's, that was sort of what I was, what I was trying to get at. All right, the book is Calf. Andrea Klein, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks to Sarah Bakewell, Tony Chilatamudi, Andrea Klein. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld, and associate producer, Jim Lane. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter, should you be moved to do so. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.